welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. And I'm Amy Kraft. And thanks everyone for joining us. If this is your first time, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. So this podcast is one of the ways we do that. Amy and I talk about the news of the week related to diversity and inclusion. And we usually bring on a guest from the children's media industry to talk about their work, their research, etc. And we share, um, usually when we're talking about the news, we have those articles in our newsletter that goes out every Sunday. And we encourage you to share those articles and get the word out about us and about um, this important topic. So I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I know I did. Amy, I know you did, right? Yeah, it was nice and chill, and I saw lots of movies. That's great. And <laughs> the movie is a is a great uh, segue for what we wanted to to talk about because Moana came out uh, last Moana. weekend, Thanksgiving yep. weekend, and you've been saw singing it, the right? songs ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and what was interesting is uh, my 11-year-old was like, I don't want to go see that. She and I had just seen Fantastic Beasts. Oh, really? And, uh, and the day before, and it's like, no, let's go. And then she ended up being really glad that she went. So both the 6-year-old and the 11-year-old really liked it. Nice. Um, yeah, we had a really good time. The animation is stunning. Like, uh, one thing a lot of people are talking about with the animation is the water. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, when Disney and Pixar, like, do things, it's like, you know, when Monsters, Inc. came out. Oh, it was right, like the fur, right. <laughs> it braved the hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They actually yeah. talk about that in one of the articles about how they had to add hair to, to Maui, and that's usually very, uh, very complicated. This um, this film is not Pixar, right? It's uh, right. It's just Walt Disney. It's just Disney. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I remember there's been this like discussion how there's now this rivalry between between like within the studios because. Mm -hmm. You know, Disney um, animation seems to have gotten some of its mojo back. So well, th that um, rivalry can only benefit us, the audience. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Um, so we've talked about this film a couple times. Um, mm -hmm. I think we talked about it when they announced it, um, or really when the first trailer came out, um, and sort of there was um, some concerns from watching the trailer, but there's also sort of a lot of excitement um, about. Uh, how Disney had sort of put together the film and some of the articles that came out this week sort of reiterated that, right? They had a team um, of anthropologists and I guess what they called cultural practitioners, historians, etc. that really um, understood these islands, including Samoa, Tahiti, and Fiji. And sort of mm -hmm. they helped advise um, Disney about how to sort of tell the story and, um, you know, what to include or not to include and really where they needed to make sure that they were, um, you know, being sort of sensitive to the culture that they were, the legend that, the, that they were telling. So um, I think there were, there's been a couple pieces, right, that's, that's come out sort of reacting to both of those. I think the one that you found was, uh, was Infusion.net, right? Right, right. And, uh, fusion by Isha Iran. Right, right. And and that piece sort of went through um, the the importance of, you know, 
really at a, at a high level, you know, even the headline is sort of, it's a powerful movie star, starring a brown, brown girl. And then she sort of says, but I still have issues um, with it. So I think just like in terms of your, like when you were watching the film, did you sort of, were the, all these things on your mind or were you sort of sitting back and, and, uh, and eating the popcorn and, and enjoying the film, just sort of taking it in? I was mostly sitting back and enjoying the yeah. film. And I think that's be- to the tribute of Moana, the character. Yeah. Like, this girl is awesome. Like, everything about her character and her relationship to the ocean and how she interacts with Maui. Like, this girl, like, is an amazing character. There are some things about Maui that made me, you know, just sort of like, huh, I wonder if that's cool to do. Like, I, I was anxious to read things like this fusion piece. And there's another one in Medium about like how Pacific Islanders were relating to it. One mm-hmm. of it was that uh, a big part of the storytelling is that Maui's tattoos animate. And, you know, we had talked a lot about about the tattoos when we talked about the Halloween costume right. and, you know, the significance of these tattoos. And I wondered, I'm like, you know, for me, it's like it's not my culture. So but I, it raised a flag for me. Like, I wonder if that's cool to do. You know, like, yeah. did the did the Oceanic Trust say, like, give that the thumbs up? Right. You know, it was, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but he also, the character of Maui is also presented as, and, you know, the fusion pieces touches on this too, you know, he's really like a narcissist and um, it's all to like benefit himself. I right. mean, even it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it really is like, he's just a narcissist and <laughs> but the culture, the, the cultural, impact of Maui in Polynesian culture is more significant than that. Oh, I see. So they Um, sort of simplified that. Yeah. And I think that, um, this fusion piece touches on like, you know, you're taking this culture, but you're still making a Disney story out of it. So, you know, like you have this great, um, relationship between these two characters, like Maui doesn't want anything to do with Moana. She's got to fight her way to get his help. And, you know, it, it makes for like a good Disney story. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like it wasn't a Disney story I had totally seen before. Um, you know, it even makes fun of the princess trope at one yeah. point, which is great. <laughs> if you wear a dress and have an animal sidekick, you're a princess. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So that was funny, but, but given that like it's dealing with mother nature in a very feminine way too, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it was I, I thought the same thing. I actually felt like the, when I watched frozen, that it wasn't a Disney movie that, um, that I had seen before, but it might've been cause I hadn't seen a Disney movie in a long time, but, um, I felt like the twist with the print, the prince actually being a bad guy and sort of, right. um, you know, just the fact that there were two female leads. Um, but it, that story certainly felt, felt different. Um, so it's good yeah. And that one felt like a love story between two sisters, yeah. which felt extraordinary at the time, I right. think. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think the other thing that was interesting about Moana is there's a real generational presence. Like her grandmother plays a really big role. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is family death involved because it's <laughs> Disney. Right. <laughs> um, but, but the idea of like ancestry, um, 
was really important to this movie and sort of like, what is the role that you're meant to play? Like what's in your nature? And I think like the messaging that way, particularly of the character of Milano to like find yourself and your role in the world and not just what people tell you to be um, in part to keep you safe. Um, you know, you have to go do the thing you're meant to do, which is, it was really lovely. A lovely yeah. story. Yeah. I think, um, the last two, sort of the last two paragraphs in this fusion piece where, where she sort of talks about this tension between being a minority in a world where imagery and representation mean so much. Like, you know, she talks about how she wants to see herself, but at the same times it, it feels like you're attaching yourself to the strings wielded by others, you know, she talks about how um, clearly some of these characters that they created, um, the mythological Kakamura tribe, rendering them adorable, insanely merchable answer to minions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I thought that was very, it's very well put. Like, um, you know, at the end of the day, she says she loves Moana and she accepts it as a Disney movie that draws um imagery and audio scape from Polynesian culture, but isn't inherently Polynesian. And mm-hmm. um, I think we talk about that all the time, the importance of sort of, you know, I think she is acknowledging that Disney has, these are huge steps that they took, right? Setting up this committee to sort of make sure that the legend that they're using and the sort of the culture that they're appropriating is being done in a, um, in the right way, I think is, is, something that should be applauded and and she does that we talk about that all the time right Um, yeah and she says exactly that it's a step in the right direction so you're going to try things and it's not going to be perfect but the fact that you tried and you did your diligence like puts you a step in the right direction and that's a step towards progress so like we're not all going to go out there and be perfect but what you can try to do and do well And then the more Disney listens to things like these, I think one of the very interesting points in here uh, came from someone on Twitter named Fangirl Jean. This is mentioned in the Fusion article as well about how Disney tends to separate through time and colonialism people of color. So like Mulan is Mm -hmm. a period piece, like Moana is taking place long ago, you know, that we don't have like I I was thinking a lot about that after I read this. Moana could have been done in present time, you know, and I don't think it would have changed the movie. It would have changed the costumes for sure. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. Like there's, there is like this. uh, Yeah. I think that's totally this this colonial lens. Right. Then that prism sort of like is like, it also creates this sort of backward, it can lend itself to sort of a backward feel, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're already setting it up in a time before, you know, before our time, then like there's going to be a feel that it feels very old and ancient sort of there. Yeah. So I didn't realize Moana takes place that far in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's sort of like the creation of islands, Uh, you know what I mean? mm Yeah. So it's really old (laughs) myth making. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so I think I, we wanted to sort of contrast this, um, with Queen of Cotway, um, which came out, I think summertime, right? Um, and, but, but before we do that, I think we, I really want to touch on this Vanity Fair 
piece um, mm-hmm. that you know, it's entitled The Year Disney Started to Take Diversity Seriously. Um, it's by Johanna Desta. Um, it's, it's from about a week ago. And, you know, it really goes through everything that Disney is, is doing to sort of focus on diversity. Um, you know, I, just reading the third paragraph where they said they have a Christmas movie starring Kevin Hart coming out. You know, the adaption of The Nutcracker has Misty Copeland and Morgan Freeman. Um, and they're reimagining The Rocketeer with a young black girl. I mean, like, the list just goes on and on. And then, obviously, they touch on Rogue One with Forrest Whitaker, um, Diego Luna, Riza. I mean, like, it's it's just incredible, the um, commitment. But then they talk about something that we talk about all the time, that, yes, the 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 stories you're telling and the actors that you have should be, um, you know, diverse. But the people who are behind the scenes, the directors, the producers... Um, they also have to be, you know, they have to be coming from diverse uh, viewpoints. And they're, you know, they they say that, 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 you know, Ryan Coogler, who is incredible, he did, um, did, uh, why is the name, uh, Creed, mm-hmm. is now doing Black Panther. Um, and, you know, the, the cast there is diverse. And A Wrinkle in Time, which I know is one of your one of yours. Just can't wait. <laughs> when uh, when does that come out? Have they announced a date yet? I don't think that they've announced a date yet. It's got to be like either later in 2017 or 2018. Right, right. Because they, they've just finished casting. Yeah, I think. that's right. Yeah, that makes sense. 2018. Um, and then Catherine Kennedy, who's who's basically been sort of taken over Lucasfilm and and really um, is the Star Wars sort of brain, you know, she said she's looking for a female director for, you know, for the the first female director of a Star Wars film. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, it's clear that, um, I, I think there's two things happening. One is sort of Disney is committing to this out of a, a a clear idea that there, this is going to help their bottom line, right? Disney, I don't think does anything without that in in mind just like any um business and we've talked about that so many times that diversity has been shown over and over again you know sells tickets it gets you viewers on the television and um and is is better for for your bottom line and then Mm -hmm. i think the second piece of it is that they've just started to realize that there are great stories out there and and great stories to tell um and and when you you know widen your your breadth of people that you're working with, um, those those come to light. So um, it's one thing that when I got home from seeing Queen of Cotway, when I got home from seeing Moonlight, I remember for both of them going on Facebook and being like, if you are somebody who is sick of seeing the rehashes, the sequels, the reboots, you know, all this stuff. If you complain about Hollywood giving you like one story to tell, go see these movies. Right. You know, like I like definitely felt that way after Moonlight. I was like kind of wrecked after seeing that movie. Yeah. It's not for kids, obviously, but right. it really was like, I've never seen this movie. And I'm yeah. excited that I've never seen this movie, you right. know, because again, like what you're saying, there are new stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the CEO of, of Disney, Bob Iger, says their diversity is not only important, it is a core strategy for the company. Um, and, like, again, like, people can sort of um, 
you, you can say things and, but, you know, your actions have to back it up. And I think this is a good example of where Disney is, is making a commitment um, to do that. I think one of the parts I was curious about was where they said, um, you know, the conventional wisdom has been you can't have a film with a minority lead because it's not going to travel well overseas. So, like, most of the money now in film is made overseas, right? Like, a Tom Cruise right. movie will open here at whatever, $100, you know, $35, 40000000 million and then make, you know, um, hundreds of millions overseas. And so that's sort of the focus. And there's a concern that if you have a lead that's not white, you know, it's, it's not going to work in, in those bigger markets overseas. And so what, what they were saying is that, they, that a study conducted by UCLA basically says that that's not true. Now, I'm a little skeptical because obviously a lot of this was based on the fact that like, look, Disney made $2 billion gross with Star Wars, right? But like, mm-hmm. that also might be because it's Star Wars, right? Right. Um, and so that, that's sort of like the stick in your foot in the door, right? So yeah. you put characters, diverse characters in a Star Wars. Right. And it's like, see everyone, it's going to be okay for you yeah. to have diverse characters. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, it wasn't even among a lot of people in the States. People still cried over that. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, um, but to sort of go back to your point of, look, if you want to see original storytelling, you got to go see Queen of Cotway and sort of make a you're making that commitment that you care about films that aren't, um, you know, that aren't just sequels. Yeah. Th- I think this is the role that the audience can play. So yeah. we were talking about before this call box office. So I looked it up this morning, Queen of Cotway actually came out in September. It has made $9.5 million right. that had a budget of like $15 million. Right. So it right. hasn't made back its money. Moana has made $25.6 million and it's been out for about a week. (laughs) So it's like, it's interesting. So I I hope that Disney pulls the lesson of, you know, like these stories are valuable. The great thing about Queen of Cotway is like the critical reviews have been amazing. I would love to see this win some Oscars. Um, And then I think Disney would feel like, yeah, that was totally worth doing because now here are Oscars uh, won about that. Um, yeah, the root actually has a really great piece, um, called with queen of Cotway figuring out what black moviegoers want remains a mystery because so I think the root was even kind of lamenting this box office. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh my gosh, what more do you need? It's a great story. Yeah. It's these amazing actors. Um, but you know, they were saying it felt, you know, too much like, like broccoli, like it's a good for you movie. Like yeah. it's a to see, which of course makes it great Oscar bait. <laughs> so maybe, um, but it was interesting. So it's like, and and I don't think this is specific just to black audiences. But if you want to see more different kinds of movies, go see them, <laughs> or like you know, download Queen of Cotway today. Like go pay for it on iTunes or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think, um, like you said, it was is sort of broccoli. It says in there that you know the. Um, if a film seems more educational than dramatic, it falls out of the have to see category mm-hmm. and that makes it unappealing to audiences. I exactly. think, yeah, I mean the, um, the challenge I think with sort of this article I, I thought was good, but it also sort of, um, it, it felt at times like it was trying to make excuses like, well, we shouldn't look at the box office receipts. And it was like, well, 
I mean, we just use the box office receipts to make the case that, you know, a minority can be the lead and still do well overseas, right? So we can't then sort of ignore it when, um, when this movie struggles. And I think it, it just, like, I think what you said is right. It, it just comes down to, I can wait, right? I don't need to go see this movie in the theater. It feels too educational. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to spend my dollars at the theater. I'll wait till it's on demand or, you know, I'll spend my dollars elsewhere. And I think that's the challenge. So, like, it has to be, the, you know, maybe the other side of that is it will get a, an Oscar or sort of the, the critical acclaim pieces is, is important. But I think it's, it's really a struggle when it can't make back that original, um, that original investment. Right. I think the good thing, and this was my takeaway from the Vandy Fair piece, when you looked at this long list, what that did, I think, is take away the pressure from any individual film. Mm -hmm. You know, like even when you look at like, okay, so the representation in Moana Mm -hmm. is still problematic for a couple reasons, but Queen of Cotwe was done perfectly. So like Disney has this track record of like, you know, like this movie's amazing. This movie had faults, but we've got this other one coming out and this, whereas like, I remember we were talking about when Ghostbusters came out. It's like, if that doesn't do well, people then say like, "Mm, women in comedy, sorry. You know, where like it's not all up to a single movie yeah. to perform yeah. or a single movie to be critically acclaimed, but a single movie to have gotten representation right if you created like tons of movies. Yeah. I think that's you know, really think well that's, said. That's exactly. the end goal. Exactly. That's a really good point. Like the pressure of one film to sort of carry the torch for all other, you know, future films is is a little ridiculous and and silly and i think it goes back to um when we were talking about oscar so white you know people were like well why wasn't creed nominated why wasn't straight out of compton nominated and then sort of the question became well why were those the only two films that we can think of that had people of color in it like it it's like you're saying we need to sort of create this stable of films so it stops becoming this oh it's it's either going to succeed or we're never going to make another film like this again and um that you know i think disney sort of with creating more and more of these films it's going to just become the the new normal which um which makes me feel good yeah and then you're allowed to have more missteps while you're figuring out the path forward right right exactly One other one that I wanted to touch on before we get to our very special guest um, is Vulture did this amazing summary of uh, Ava DuVernay's new show, Queen Sugar, Mm -hmm. and all the female directors she's giving jobs to. So um, Ava DuVernay had said she didn't set out to be like, let's find only women directors for this show. But she really wanted to find people who shared her vision. And that ended up being a lot of people from the independent film circuit. And it ended up being women. Of course, here's like that bias, right? Of like, you know, here are the people in my circle. So I'm going to hire the people in my circle. And for Ava DuVernay, that included a lot of women. Um, So Queen Sugar is a show on the OWN network. That's Mm -hmm. Oprah's uh, network um, based on a Natalie Brazil novel. And it's an adult show. It's sort of soap opery set in New Orleans. But what was interesting about this Vulture piece is it lists every one of the female directors working on the show, their past credits, 
And then sort of they talk about what it's like to work on the show and what it's like to break into Hollywood. So for a lot of these women, they're independent filmmakers, but they've been trying to get into episodic television. Mm -hmm. And everyone in television has been saying, like, you need experience before we can hire you. But, you know, you can't get experience unless someone hires you. Um, you know, so for instance, there's, a, um, a woman, So Young Kim, she's done indie films like Treeless Mountain and Love Song at Sundance. And her reaction was, you know, like without Ava DuVernay saying, please try this and her finding it to be like, you know, television is not that much different from working in independent film, only you have a much bigger budget. So <laughs> great. Um, but she said that like the moment she landed this queen sugar job, she then immediately got um, work on Transparent, American Crime, and the new Duplass comedy on HBO. So it's like all of a sudden, like she said, people said, oh, we didn't know there were that many women directors. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so all of a sudden people are like, oh, okay. So every woman on this list had exactly the same experience like now they have experience under their belt and they're getting hired all over the place but it's that first hire like right. it's so insane to me yeah um and couple that with there's a lovely fusion video of leslie odom jr talking about hamilton um that we can post to our facebook page yeah um but he's just talking about like when he first saw you know, like some players doing a scene from Hamilton and, you know, feeling like it's something that he had never seen before. But what he really stresses is this thing of when you're marginalized, when you're never given that chance and you're never given a role like, you know, Aaron Burr in Hamilton, where you're really being asked to stretch your limits and do like this um, expansive character with great range, then you never get to show your talent. Like mm -hmm. you, you really never have the opportunity. So I feel like for these women on uh, Ava DuVernay show, it's like, just give me that chance to show what I can do. And then I can show what I can do, you know? So it's like all of this comes down to opportunity. Right. Right. Exactly. This I, this piece is great. Um, I I think you know going through each and every director that she had um, was fantastic and and telling their story, and you know she's sort of paying it forward, right? Mm -hmm. She got this chance. You know she talks about it all the time on Twitter. She got this chance from Oprah, and um, you know she knows there's plenty of talented directors out there uh, who are female, and and she went and got them, and now. It's sort of like, you know, it, it reminds me, it's probably not a great comparison, but it's sort of like the coaching tree in sort of um, NFL football. Like, this is what happens. <laughs> yeah, like, you've you, lost me here. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of have this coach and then he has assistants um, and, and sort of that's how it, it spreads out. It's the same thing. She, you know, she gave him this shot and now um, they're going to go give other female directors a shot and it's, it's just going to keep going like that. Um, this is There's a lovely little gift that makes the rounds on Facebook now again, but it's like a sort of a white box and a woman climbs up into the box, but then reaches down and pulls the next woman up with her while she climbs up. You know, right. it really is this like lovely thing of like, let's just keep pulling women up exactly. with us. Exactly. Um, yeah, this yeah. is fantastic. Um, this was, this is probably like our most uplifting um, newsy podcast. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a good newsy. 
Yeah, I know. This is this is good. We should uh, we should put this one in a box and come back to it when um, when we have a rough week. When so um, so that's gonna wrap it up. We're gonna make sure we have all of these links. Some will be in our newsletter. Um, all of them will be in our show notes. Uh, coming up, we have a great interview with Sandhya Nankani. She is the founder of Literary Safari. Um, she has a new app that was featured in the App Store a couple weeks ago that she's going to talk about. And she is also a co-founding member of Diversity in Apps. So we have a lot to, to discuss there. So that's coming up soon. All right, folks, as promised, we have a great guest today. Uh, Sandhya Nankani is the founder of Literary Safari, an award-winning producer of children's apps and content, and she's a founding member of Diversity in Apps as well. Sandhya, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's so great to be here and um, get to hang out with you and Amy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I'm glad we uh, we were able to to figure this out. I know we all have busy schedules. So let's talk about your newest app, Grandma's Great Gourd. So this is like a little bit of a return to your roots, right? This is your third app. It's it's a storybook app, very yeah. similar to um, to the first app you you did as well. You want to you want to tell us about this one as well as all of your apps? Sure. So um, we started. Uh, so I've been working in the kids media world for um, a number of years and started Literary Safari about eight years ago. And we do a lot of work with um, you know, sort of print educational clients and then segued into this digital um, world after doing a, a number of projects in the digital sphere where we were helping clients like PBS and Line Television and um, E-Line Media create, you know, sort of um, more uh, civics and social studies and um, STEM-based games. So I was really interested in kind of applying all of the learning that I'd had in these different spheres in my own way and basically bootstrapping a bunch of apps and seeing um, how we could create content for kids that is educational um, as well as at the same time celebrate storytelling and literacy. Um, and as you know, sort of my big interest is um, bringing multicultural um, content alive um, through, you know, sort of play. So, right. um, so our first app, Dentist Bird was uh, an adaptation of a picture book based on a Liberian folktale. And Grandma's Great Gourd is an adaptation of a second picture book based on a South Asian folktale um, by actually a well-known Indian-American author. Her name is Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. And she's written a number of best-selling adult novels. And this is her first picture book that came out in 2013. And it was, you know, received really wide accolades. It was actually named a Kirkus Review's best um, picture book uh, for 2013 and is listed in a lot of um, sort of folktale um, thematic literature units um, for schools. A lot of schools have in grades two and three particularly um, folktale units. So this title, you know, comes up in a lot of um, curriculum lists. And I, so I have a connection both to West Africa and South Asia, which is why I've started doing are, you know, sort of folktale-based apps with those two regions. I was born in Ghana um, and grew up there and then split um, some of my later years from, you know, sort of when I was 6 to 12, um, living in 
India and then moved to um, suburban New Jersey <laughs> when I was in grade six. So I have sort of these three, my foot, my not three feet, but my, you know, sort of my feet in these three worlds. Right. Um, so those were sort of intuitively um, kind of native places to begin with. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that's all a bit of background. So what, what's really exciting to me about Grandma's Great Gourd is it, it is a trickster tale, um, sort of like Dentist Bird as well. But, you know, one of the sort of learning points I took away from um, creating Dentist Bird, which is about a crocodile in a rainforest and the animals trying to, you know, sort of figure out how to help him when he has a terrible toothache, was there are a lot of folktales out there and apps, um, folktale apps, and they often, even though they come from different cultures, feature animals mm -hmm. and you don't see people. So what I love about Grandma's Great Gourd is that it is a trickster tale and usually you have animals who play tricks, but here we have, you know, sort of a human protagonist right. and I love the fact that she's a woman. So <laughs> And um, she's a grandma. I right. feel like you also never see grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're sort of yeah, they're they're lending out words of wisdom, not like, you know, being the main character. So yeah. yeah, and this grandma, she's really, um, she's clever, right. she's smart, and she's brave. You know, she um, she's walking through the forest and uh, going to visit her daughter and is confronted by three animals who, you know, all want to eat her. And she basically convinces them to let her go because she's too skinny and says, you can eat me on my way back. Right. Um, and then, you know, comes up with a plan with her daughter. Um, she has a real green thumb in the garden and so hides herself in a giant gourd and you know, <laughs> her daughter rolls her into the forest and she you know, sort of sings her way um, to safety basically until she's discovered by a fox. Um, and then you know, she tr again tricks him by calling on her faithful um, dog, oh, you know, canine yeah. canyons. And I also love the dog aspect of this. I think that's really appealing to little kids, you know. Um, folk tales can be scary and gory and fairy tales. And, you know, I, I really found this particular one appealing because even though it has that like little bit of fear factor, it's right. still safe enough that, um, young children, um, can approach it and, you know, sort of not walk away with, um, too much, you know, there isn't anything awful that happens <laughs> yeah, along the way. Exactly. Right. And there, um, and like you said, folktales can also sometimes be confusing. And um, I, I think this one is, is it's just a lot of fun. I know when I was playing with it and reading through it, it was um, it was just the, the grandma's just like you said, this very interesting, um, funny, awesome character. So um, the, I think you had a word for her, Kabir, when you first looked at it, you said she was quirky or I don't remember. Yeah. But I, that, yeah. Yeah, like I, I think it was part of it was like you're saying you don't normally have the grandma be the protagonist, and she isn't someone who, if the grandma's in the in the story, she isn't the one sort of front and center or sort of coming up with this plan. And like you're saying, like going out into the forest, like grandma's normally like at home, right? Um, and so this, I just found that so interesting and so different from um, so many of the the apps out there. Um, what yeah, it sort um, of upends the, the little red riding hood right. thing. It's like grandma yeah. making the journey, not yeah, the journey exactly. That, yeah, I didn't that think was, of that, but that's mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what was sort of the biggest challenge as you were, um, you were putting together the, sto the story, and sort of how did it contrast with um, when you were putting together Dentist Bird, which is obviously your first one? 
Um, so the challenge was also part of the, they, they sort of go hand in hand together. What was most challenging with putting Dentist Bird together was that we had a, <clears throat> we were, you know, adapting picture books in both cases. With Dentist Bird, we had, you know, sort of one piece of art for um, each spread of the picture book and we're very limited in what we could do with it in interactivity. We, we um, produce all of our apps so far in Corona, um, which allows us to kind of get into the you know app store and android pretty um you know sort of economically and yeah. um, quickly so with um so there are already you know sort of certain constraints that we do encounter with you know the level of you know sort of exciting animation and interactivity mm -hmm. that we can do but um with dentist bird you know the art was more limiting the amazing thing with grandma's great gourd is that we got you know these really layered um, digital files from um, the illustrator Susie Pilgrim Waters, who is um, originally you know from the UK and now lives in in Boston, and she she created you know just extremely detailed sort of collage like um, art that we were able to take and manipulate, and so we basically ended up you know what was challenging was to recreate the story and take these spreads of the picture book and really retell them in a way that um, served our purpose of, you know, what does it, what does it actually mean to create an interactive story? So we really moved pretty far away from the picture book, both in terms of, you know, sort of um, tweaking the story, you know, just editing down the story, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, we were very grateful that the author was, you know, open to doing and um, pretty much gave us, you know, creative license to play with. Um, the story remains the same, but, you know, we kind of had to pull back and we ended up doing, she, she uses um, a great deal of alliteration, onomatopoeia and sort of languages for um, words from the Bengali language mm -hmm. um, in the story. So for example, when the elephants are walking through the forest, she'll have a sentence that says, you know, the elephants walk through thup, thup, thup. And we thought, well, how can we take that and make that part of the interactive experience? Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how much you've played with the, you know, sort of with those aspects of the app, but I can talk through, you know, yeah. a little bit about them, but, or if you had any experiences with them, I'd love to hear. So the, the one thing I picked up on was some of the phrasing from the grandmother, like when she's mm -hmm. rolling and um, she, she shouts out like, Papre ba, like that's a very like Indian phrase like that um you know something exciting oh my is gosh happening. Yeah. yeah um so like when i heard that i was actually really happy because like that felt very authentic like it was is very true to sort of like that is something that like my aunt says that's something that i've heard um so many indian people say um yeah so it was it was fun fun to hear that i know that's not exactly the onomatopoeia you were referring to but no, but oh, I but love yeah. the onomatopoeia interactivity. And I suspect when you tested that with kids that that's really popular too, right? Like yeah. I see like mm -hmm. with my kids too, it's like, boom, 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 you know, <laughs> like, well, I want to hear that. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, in bringing a story from another culture to, um, you know, a diverse sort of audience. Um, so, you know, one is the, the, um, the character is unfamiliar, her dress is unfamiliar, the environment is unfamiliar, and then there are aspects of language that are unfamiliar. So how do you sort of wrap all of that together and make it, um, you know, kind of accessible to kids? So 
um, one of the things that we did was we created, um, so, you know, if you have in the store, in the picture book and the story, you know, in the print version, these lines, you know, these words are sort of part of the story. So we really pulled them out and made them part of the interactivity. So when the elephants walk and you tap on the elephants, you hear, you know, the thup, 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 yeah. or, um, kush, kush is, you know, another one that's used, um, or, Gargar for you know the gourd rolling, and then we created a story studio um, where basically you know kids can or you know with their caregivers and something I'd love to talk about a little bit more you know sort of our ideas for how this can be used as a tool for joint engagement. But in the story studio, um, kids can go in and essentially record each uh, each of these sounds, a number of these sounds that appear in the app itself. So for example, we asked them, what do you say when you're surprised? You know, grandma says, bop, re, bop, that means, oh my gosh, right? Um, and then when they record it, they have the option of that appearing in the story itself so that when they go back and they replay through the story, um, they'll actually hear their voice and their expression of surprise. Right. And that is also sort of packaged into the game. So if once they start playing the game with the grandma, it's a rolling, a gourd rolling game. And um, you sort of have to, you know, send her into the forest. And if she flies up really high, it's built to say bop, re, bop. But once they've, you know, sort of gone into the sound effects studio, they'll hear their voices as grandma's rolling <laughs> through the forest. That's so awesome. that was kind of, I, in our testing, we found that to be a real moment of delight. Um, and our idea is that, you know, that can, this can be an opportunity for families to, you know, do some of this stuff together, record their voices, you know, grandparents to sit with kids um, and really play with technology in a way that can, you know, I always love those books that you get around the holidays where you can record your, you know, like it was the night before Christmas, right? Yeah. And then you play it back. So our, you know, inspiration was how can we make that part of, this experience while bringing the oral tradition to a digital platform, right. but still create a pace and ex an experience that kind of um, resembles the mood of the oral story storytelling tradition. I don't know if that makes sense. No, for sure. It's sort of an evolution of that and sort of like you're pulling that nostalgic piece that you remember when you were a kid sort of recording the story and, and sort of um, updating it and upgrading it for um, sort of the digital age that makes sense yeah yeah and it gives kids a real sense of ownership right. of it too which is nice yeah yeah um yeah. that that's awesome do you want to talk a little bit more um about the game um and sort of how where that came from and um what you're so, sort of hoping to that, that the kids get out of it Sure. So um, we wanted to um, build in a mini. So there, there's there are a few different aspects to the app. There's right. the um, this interactive story that you can just you know either kind of have play on autoplay or um, you know sort of interact with and get through. And one of the big you know kind of narrative um, moments in the story is when Grandma is rolling through the forest in the gourd. And you're pushing her along, and each time she, you know, kind of meets a f one of the forest animals, and then has this interaction with them. So um, our um, developer Jason Schroeder was, you know, really inspired by that, and said, "Well, what if we come up with a mini game where, you know, kids just have the experience of rolling grandma um, through the forest over, you know, 
kind of differing terrains and she, you know, encounters the animals. And so we started brainstorming about that and basically decided to take it a little bit further. And um, I, I was interested in, you know, can, kind of how can we create a, ga- uh, a game that is inspired by some of the physics of, you know, rolling um, and talk to some advisors and some um, who are sort of friends from a long time ago. And then they put me in contact with other people. And basically, you know, they're, they're STEM um, educators and they, and we shared the basic concept with them and came up with a very simple, um, I wouldn't say this is a physics game. I would say it's physics inspired um, where you have five different kinds of gourds that are different shapes and sizes. And we have two meters. One is, um, a power meter and the other is sort of an angle meter and essentially you know you tap on each of those it's a very simple um you know tapping mechanism but the idea is that you start out with you know the bait the most basic gourd which rolls pretty far um but doesn't have a lot of stickiness and then um you as you kind of go you know, gain more mileage and more points, you unlock different gourds. And each of them has a different um, reaction to the terrain. So really kids start to play with, you know, how much should I, how hard should I tap? Where should I tap this on the meter? And, you know, at which point on this angle meter would it make sense? You know, uh, so this is not a very new concept in terms of games, right? But um, we really were trying to figure out how to just give kids... um, a reason to come back to mm-hmm. a storybook app. You know, I, I think um, when you love a story as a as as a kid, you you want to read it again. But then there are also there are different audiences. You know, this is something we talk about with the Dig Toolkit. How do we appeal to different kinds of readers? How do we appeal to um, you know sort of a range of kids and draw them into uh, an experience of literature. So we wanted to put some sticky um, qualities into this that could appeal to, you know, sort of different layers. So there's a gamer, um, like one of um, our testers, you know, he, he's a kindergartner and his big thing is gaming. And he was like, Oh, what is this story? But then he went through the story and then he found the game and he was like, Oh my gosh, you know, and then it made him go back to the story because he wanted to, find out more about the gourd. So, you know, sort of right. different um, doorways yeah, through which exactly. you can approach um, accessing literature was our idea. Yeah, yeah. That, that it seems sense. like that's a theme with all of your apps. You're giving kids, like, different points of entry into play. Like, I feel like your Hangart app does that really nicely as well. Do you want to say a few words about Hangart? Yeah, so, um, so we've been really... Um, Kind of so. While one of the big challenges you asked about creating this was that um, licensing it took a very long time. So, um, in the interim, you know, our original idea was to create a series of folktale-based um, uh, game apps, and the the first was Dentist Bird, and the second was Grandma's was going to be Grandma's Great Gourd, but it took a very long time to license. And in the meantime, I sort of um, basically had had a kindergartner first grader who was learning to read and write and coming home with sight words and you know started really um playing a lot of games with her and one day we sat we were in a car waiting I don't know why but we had a long waiting period for some reason in a car and not moving and I said come in the front seat and let's play this game and I actually hadn't played hangman in a very long time Mm -hmm. um 
And I said, okay, you know, let's play Hangman. And then when we started playing it, and I noticed that she really wanted to pick out words and have me guess them. And it became like a thing, um, except that I hadn't played Hangman in so long that I was a little bit horrified by, um, (laughs) you know, what Hangman was. And I started digging around and I said, is, are there Hangman apps out there? Like are teachers playing Hangman in classrooms? And so I started looking and, um, like long story short, you know, I found a lot of Hangman apps in the app store, but they were really gory and had creepy music, a lot of them, or they were like, um, we are the concept of Hangman, but, you know, we're with animals or, you know, and then I went on teacher boards and they were talking about how they can't really play Hangman in the classroom anymore. Um, and, you know, so they do Pizza Man or they do Flower Girl with petals falling. And so I really started thinking about sort of this early, um, you know, sort of moment of literacy where words are coming into a child's life and how words connect, their learning of words is so connected to, you know, the pictures that they draw and the stories that they tell. And research, you know, shows that, um, you know, our, our sort of brains connect the two, you know, when we when we look at, for example, one of the first sight words I think kids learn is pizza. It's because they see it. They see it on a <laughs> on a on a billboard or on an awning, and they or know on they their dinner plate. Yeah. they can even read, right? Or like Sonic or something. So, um, so I sort of you know was just sitting there waiting for you know working on other projects and waiting for Grandma's Gourd licensing to happen, and then <laughs> kind of had this you know, you just have these ideas sometimes. So it was this kind of crazy idea. And then I just went with it and basically kind of, you know, designed a game, um, which we put out last year called Hangart, which combines the game of um, Hangman with the concept of um, drawing pictures and telling stories. And very simply put, we took the the concept of Hangman, but changed it so that, um, really, you know, we're thinking about how kids work really hard to learn words. So our hangman is a man um, hanging on a monkey bar who, um, you know, falls off if you guess too many wrong letters, but then he gets back up and, you know, he keeps, you know, he, 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 he <laughs> he's okay. That. Yeah. So that's a hanging man. You know, like you think about kids on like mon- monkey bars or trapeze bars. So, you know, we sort of, that's what hanging means to them. Yeah. Right. So we, we redefined or reconceptualized hangman. And so in the game we have, um, for every correct letter that you guess, you're rewarded with a, you know, sort of a reveal of part of an illustration, um, and uh, until ultimate, you, you guess the whole, if you guess the whole word, you get a whole picture that comes with it. It's an animated, you know, sort of the drawing is done and that goes into your word gallery and you can then go in and draw your own picture of the word itself. Um, and then, you know, kind of go into a story studio and create digital stories using your one words. And, um, we've been really, you know, we've gotten a, a lot of really great feedback and, um, you know, reviews and, I've won a couple of awards and, and the game is now listed on common sense media's, um, best, you know, wordplay games and, um, best spelling apps as well. So we're really pleased with, with the feedback, um, and are, you know, working to figure out how to get into more schools. It's still that challenge of like the fact that we use the word hangman, you know, having to like explain that this is not a hangman game, right. maybe that's a marketing or branding challenge that I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, everyone listening should definitely check out all of your apps. Yeah. They're, like, they're, they're all just lovely and delightful. While we have you, I thought it would be very interesting for our listeners to hear how diversity in apps came to be and how it was a meeting of the two of you um, that made this all happen. <laughs> it's so delightful for me. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, so do you want to start? No, no, you start. You start. I'll, I'll fill in any, any details. <laughs> so um, let's see. So it was November. I guess we met in November. Um, gosh, it's November. Is it November 2014? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, both Kabir and I attended the... Um, Dust or Magic conference that was held um, in in November 2014, um, which is organized by you know Children's Technology Review, and um, it's it's an annual gathering. I'm sure many of our listeners know it of you know app developers, researchers, children, children media um, professionals, and Kabir and I were both there for the first time, and we were both sort of working on our maiden apps, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, Kabir, you were working on Storied Myth and I was working on Dentist Bird and we were sitting next to each other and we um, realized that, you know, we were both working on similar kind of concepts, too, of how to bring literature and folk tales and, you know, sort of alive um, <clears throat> using this new, you know, sort of digital platform that is available to kids and how do you get more stories and literature into their hands. And um, we just, you know... The conversations were great, but we we also started, you know, having our own sort of side conversation, right, Kabir, yeah, about yeah. Um, what we felt um, could be, a, you know, valuable additions to um, to the table in terms of what we felt was missing, and you know, in in the world of um, children's apps. And um, Kabir, chime in because I need to <laughs> take a sip of. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly right. I felt like um, Sunday and I were sort of like almost exactly at the same place as these sort of indie developers that were attending this conference, probably because somebody told us that that we should come to this thing. Um, and we were sort of trying to figure out all of the same things of how do we bring these stories to life, but then also just the business aspects. How do we market these things and sort of um, how do we sort of um, talk to Apple about um, how their categories are set up and all of these uh, conversations that we were, we were having, I, I think like continued through. Um, I remember we went out for this Mediterranean dinner and then mm -hmm. like that um, created the, we, we were really talking about um, how the, the stories we were telling were, um, were, were different from, from what was out there and the importance of, uh, you know, there were there were so many more stories that that needed to be told, and it wasn't, um, and it, it didn't feel like the um, the audience was was being reached, and sort of the the people at the at the conference who were great and had a had a lot to say weren't really talking about um, diversity and inclusion in any way. I think until really the the last day mm -hmm. um, where that was true, yeah. Um... Where there, um, where there was a real discussion around team and how your team was um, set up, and um, you know who was part of your team, what what lenses were they sort of bringing to the discussion, and and, and then therefore what sort of products were, were being made. So um, you know after the conference, I think Sunny and I definitely stayed in touch. Again, this was like we were at the same place, and it was sort of like, how are you marketing this, or like. 
have you reached have you found anybody or have you have you heard back from the apple person that we met there etc and um i think Sonia, you should really pick up this part because it was really like you started then reaching out to these folks or really we discovered that these people there were tons of researchers out there and they were sort of working in their i don't want to say silo but they were sort of in their mm -hmm. their own piece and those weren't bubbling <coughs> up to the top right yeah um so I, yeah, I think that we left and the conversations continued yeah. and, um, you know, we both came out with our um, respective apps and when, when we, when we published, um, or launched Dentist Bird, you know, I, I started looking around to see what else was out there in terms of, you know, of course you do like, you know, significant market yeah. research and you're trying to figure out you know, who, how do I reach the potential audience? And it was, um, it was Everything kept, you know, I, I come from sort of a combined print and digital background. So I was going back to see this ongoing, really rich conversation going on um, in the world of print books with, you know, we need diverse books mm -hmm. um, and how this, pro, you know, this change was happening in the print um, publishing world. But there wasn't really much of a conversation. It seemed, you know, was there a conversation happening, you know, around um, digital media. So I started poking around and, you know, making lists of um, apps that I thought, you know, were high quality, you know, sort of multicultural, diverse and inclusive um, content. And then, you know, reaching out to various people who, who were writing blog posts, like, for example, Amanda Armstrong, um, who was at the time at the tech center at Ericsson, had a blog called Uncomfortable Co um, Conversations for Educators, you know, and then, um, there was uh, librarians um, who Marianne Martin, who had a who's also one of our founding members, who had this really rich list of you know diverse and multicultural children's children's apps that was you know floating around. Um, so I started just re reaching out to all of those people to kind of find out what they were doing, um, and I wrote this piece on Medium, um, you know, just kind of putting out my just thoughts about all of this at the time um, called From Books to Apps, you know, diversity does matter when it comes to kids' digital diets. And um, that, I think, is what sort of, you know, all these different, and then that got sort of uh, shortened and published um, at the blog of the Joan Gans um, Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop. And then more people who had read it there kind of reached out and said, hey, we're doing work around this. And that sort of was the seed, right, for yeah. bringing um, this I, really rich I, group of people together yeah, to start. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm trying to remember. I feel like we sat down and then we were like, should we buy these domains? Like we, start, we first were like, we're going to call it We Need Diverse Apps mm -hmm. and to, to play off the We Need Diverse Books. And we bought those domains um, I remember sitting there with you and we bought those domains and then um, I think we also bought diversity in apps at the same time. Like we just were like, let's just buy all these domains and see, um, let's see how, how it works out. And then um, at that time I was working with Amy and Sharon on Story mm -hmm. Myth and I, I brought it up to you guys, I think when trying to like at a coffee shop we were talking and you both of you were just like yeah we're totally in on this this is great <laughs> yeah and I was like oh okay I was like I think because I was just like can I add you to the email list or something and you were like no we were like we're totally this is great and um we started putting the the first aspects of the website together um and then we had our first big call with 
with everyone. And I think that wasn't the call where my like my mic wasn't working, was it? I, I don't. Maybe that was like the second call. I, that I was remember, the second it was just, call. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was yeah. so great because it was like everyone had been working on this, and like obviously some people, like I think Amanda and Ed already knew each other, but. Um, mm-hmm. It just felt like we had been doing this for a long time. Like there was this like warmth and like commitment to um, to making this happen, and everybody was um, was was gung ho, and we were going to find a way to to sort of get this off the ground and and make it work. And um, it's just been amazing over um, two years that we've mm-hmm. we've like kept at it, and I think um, you know we we did a few panels and sort of. Um, came to sort of a realization I felt like that um, these were important to do but you know to really sort of get the message out there and to sort of um, to make change we needed to have sort of a deliverable and I think that's where the dig toolkit um, um, came from and then the work that we've we've put into that to sort of um, really create this framework that can then become something for for companies and educators and, and, and people to use as they um, create products is, is just great. So I know I've gone past now the origin story, Amy, sorry. but <laughs> No, but that's um, great. And I think that that teases, we, we're going to have some big announcements right. about diversity and apps in the coming week. So stay tuned exactly. for some, some news yeah. about further growth of what we're doing. Yeah. So yeah, um, I, I just want to add one short thing, which I think what's really rich about, you know, the group that came together and that's, you know, been working um, on diversity and apps is the interdisciplinary nature of mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the folks who have been contributing. So, you know, we have folks from sort of the world of media mentors, librarians, we have academics, we have real, um, you know, sort of media producers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that makes for a really, and then we have, you know, researchers, right? So we have really, uh, and educators, so we have, a, it makes for a really rich conversation um, and, you know, debates. And, exactly. And what, what we're working on with the Diverse and Inclusive Growth Toolkit is something that can speak to, you know, many layers of children's oh. media, not just apps, because as we've seen, you know, when we talk about the digital, it sort of spills over into other aspects of kids' media as well. So um, that's what's been really exciting, too, about, you know, the last couple of years, just the evolution that we didn't start out with one thing and feel like we had to just stay, right. you know, rooted in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, this has been a, a great conversation, Sandhya. Is there anything that you have um, to that, that you have coming up or that you're focused on that you can that you can tease? Um, sure. So we are we um, we're very excited. Grandma's Great Gourd was just um, you know put onto Common Sense Media's Best Book Apps for Kids um, list and given a Best Pick App Award by. Um, Tech with Kids, and we're you know working on our guide for grownups um, that'll be out later this month, as well as our Android version, which will um, be live in the next week or so. So hopefully, you know, families can get together and you know play with it over the holidays. Awesome. Um, and we've been working at Literary Safari with UNESCO on a game called World Rescue, where we've been um, contributing to the narrative design and um, character development. So that should be coming out in the next um, you know, several weeks or month or so. Um, and that's a game set in five different countries around the world and you know, sort of built on the concept of um, 
you know, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So those are a couple of awesome. things. And so where cool. can where can people find you on social media? So um, our company uh, Twitter is at Lit Safari Apps, and um, I write about um, things relating to literacy, etc., um, and um, diversity as well at uh, my Twitter handle, which is at Lit Safari. And we're also um, at, you know, literarysafari.com from where you can get to our Facebook and Instagram um, as well. And our other other app websites. All right. Thank you so much. We'll have to make sure we we bring you on as as you launch more apps. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. It's nice hanging out with both of you. (laughs) All right. Talk to you soon. Yep.